Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there. Personally, I take it as a, a frontal attack on hydrogen in general uh, by folks who just say electrify everything who really don't understand the carbon footprint of the world. The stakes couldn't be higher. While the Inflation Reduction Act launched a market for green hydrogen in the U.S., the Biden administration's implementation of new incentives stand to make or break the fledgling industry, one critical to achieving long-term climate goals. Unlike tax credits for electric vehicles, solar panel manufacturers, and clean energy developers that have already been sorted, the Treasury Department is still crafting a framework for green hydrogen more than a year after the IRA was signed into law, and it's led to a multi-million dollar battle between trade groups and environmentalists. I'm John Ingle, Content Director for Renewable Energy World, and this week on Factor This, I'm joined by Andy Marsh, CEO of Plug Power, which wants to become the everything green hydrogen company, from manufacturing electrolyzers to producing, storing, and transporting green hydrogen itself. Marsh believes the U.S. could become a green hydrogen superpower. It could also squander the opportunity of a lifetime. That's all next on Factor This from Renewable Energy World. Andy Marsh, thanks so much for joining the Factor This podcast. It's great to see you. Great to see you too, John. And thanks for doing this. You know, I've I've said it several times on the show so far, but green hydrogen remains one of the most popular topics that we have on this solar focused podcast, which I think is kind of funny. Our most listened to episode to date <laughs> is episode 12, Green Hydrogen, What's Next for the Energy Transition's Secret Weapon. And and the way I want to position this conversation is to build on a lot of those foundational topics that we addressed in that episode. So please go back if you haven't listened already and check out that primer for the technology and investment outlook so that we can focus a little more here, Andy, on on your positioning with Plug and maybe ongoing this this next step uh, for green hydrogen as part of the energy transition. I'll, I'll offer another aside that that episode published, I, I think, a week or two before the announcement of the Inflation Reduction Act. So it was almost worthless <laughs> from that point, just in the sense that the entire trajectory of this industry has changed. The market has changed, the customer profile, all of that. Um, and in addition to your role as CEO at Plug, you, Andy, are very active on the trade group leadership side as well, which we'll talk a bit about. And I think um, gives us a great opportunity to touch on these near-term conversations and debates around, you know, green hydrogen incentives, additionality, all of these different pieces that we're anxiously waiting for from the Biden Biden <laughs> administration. So um, looking forward to dive in, diving into that with you. Let's start with Plug Power. Um, you're in this really interesting position in that your company is trying to take on the entire green hydrogen value chain, not just electrolyzers or fuel cells, uh, manufacturing or storage. Explain to me what building an end-to-end green hydrogen ecosystem means to you and plug in the context of 
you know, the company's evolution over the last couple of decades and, and why you felt that was the best approach to capitalizing on this yeah. market. So, John, uh, you know, we've been doing this for 25 years. And as we've talked about before, Plugs developed the first real commercial market for fuel cells, going into a very unsexy market, putting into forklift trucks. And we've expanded greatly from there. But during my 15-year journey, the commitment that other people had to building this industry out, especially 10 years ago, was relatively limited. And even with the excitement of the IRA, you still don't see companies aggressively going after this market as Plug is doing. And companies like Amazon, whether it's for vehicles on the road, whether it's for our stationary products for providing backup to data centers or charging electric vehicles, really want a company that can provide everything from hydrogen uh, to electrolyzers to being able to deliver that hydrogen, which we can do with our cryogenic trailers, uh, to our fueling stations. You know, I, I'm not driven. I'm driven by customers who tell me that uh, they want someone who can provide a turnkey solution and someone who is committed to this industry and who's been committed to this industry for a long time. And I think that's really what distinguishes plug power. So you've heard that directly from customers that the, the bespoke nature of, of the green hydrogen ecosystem is, is it what, is it too complicated? Or are there too many moving parts and players involved um, to take on, you know, the manufacturing piece, the delivery piece, the storage piece, uh, the, the, even the power generation of, you know, getting clean electrons. It's, it's a big bite to take. So where's, <laughs> where's the value proposition there? And why, yeah. why does the customer want that? If you could drill down a little deeper. Well, let me take a step back and say that, uh, you know, the company that's doing it today is really a conglomeration of companies who have been working on different sectors. We went out and found companies that, uh, we're also committed to building out this hydrogen ecosystem and, and and ask them to come join Plug and really build out this entire ecosystem. I think if you look at a, a customer's point of view, uh, it's not easy to make all these pieces fit together today. Uh, it reminds me of, uh, you know, say 1993 in the wireless industry, John where I worked at Lucent Technologies at that time, you really needed someone who would provide you the handset. You really needed somebody who could be the wireless carrier like AT&T. You really needed somebody who could take that wireless communication and bring the optical network to a, to a central office. It's no different today. These parts aren't easily put together. And if you're a customer like Amazon, whose main job is to deliver packages, packages to your home, but also want to do that in a sustainable way, having someone they can turn to who can really manage this complete ecosystem is quite valuable to them. You mentioned the, the forklift origins. Can, I, 
you know, 25 years is a long time. So I'm not going to, we're not going to take all the time necessary to explain the entire evolution of the company, but can you give me some of those more, um, you know, milestone moments and plugs growth and transition from, you know, that, that one application to now trying to be the everything company for green hydrogen? Yeah. So I guess the, uh, when I joined the company 15 years ago, we were involved in all sorts of technologies with fuel cells from SOFC to, you know, you know, combined heat and power products, this whole full range of efforts. Material handling, which we call it, uh, was really associated with putting fuel cells in forklift trucks and helping our customers be more productive by eliminating battery charge time, by going further range, by eliminating unused space in a factory floor floor for battery charging. Around 2011, Walmart came to me and had a call coming to Jesus meeting with me, where Walmart said to me, we're not going to buy anything unless you take over service, unless you take over delivering fuel, unless you take over fueling stations. So it was not really, quite honestly, a plug decision. It was a plug survival decision to start offering this full current turnkey solution. On the part supplier side, you know, things like developing stacks, uh, buying hydrogen. And I think this is true to this day. Uh, many people really aren't all that interested in supporting the growth of this industry. And we recognized we had to become vertically integrated to really support customers' full needs. It's why we became an MEA manufacturer. We have the largest gigafact in the world in Rochester, New York. It's why we're building hydrogen plants like our ones in Georgia and Texas, uh, where we're generating green hydrogen. Uh, it wasn't because uh, it was quite honestly, John, uh, if you take up to about 2020, there weren't a whole lot of people who cared about this industry. It wasn't really until people began to understand the implications of powers where the only, you know, where it was clear hydrogen was needed to uh, decarbonize you know, up to about 20 to 25 percent of greenhouse gas emissions by 2050. I think that those milestones were really, really critical. But, you know, it really came down to the fact that uh, Plug is a company that listens to customers, thinks about technology roadmaps, think about who we can work with, which often became folks we uh, acquired to really make this industry come about. And that's really been our journey. So help me better understand where you're at on that journey then. You mentioned uh, the New York plant and you've got a few other plants that I believe you expect to come online or reach you know, full production levels within the next couple of years. What does the footprint look like today? What what are you producing um, right now? And, and kind of where sure. does that all shake out over the next you know few years? Sure. And I talk in terms of tons per day, John. And if you think about a ton of hydrogen, probably equivalent to 2,000 gallons of gasoline, just so your listeners understand when you think about at the wheels. So plug today operates a plant in Tennessee, which is 10 tons a day. 
Uh, it's a liquid plant because to move hydrogen in the United States, you really need liquid. Uh, we have a plant uh, in Georgia, which uh, will come online by the end of the month, which is 15 tons per day, uh, which uh, we expect to expand to 30 tons per day. Uh, our plan in Texas that uh, we have a turnkey EPC contract for 52 tons a day is expected to be online uh, by the end of the second quarter next year. We have a JV with Owen in St. Gabriel, uh, Louisiana, which is 15 tons a day. Our New York plant, uh, we expect will be 75 tons per day. I think you're probably looking at the end of 23, as well as a plant uh, in California uh, in a Modesto area, which uh, will be another 30 tons of green hydrogen per day. Building a hydrogen plant at the Port of Antwerp, which should be online in 2025, which is 30 tons a day. And we're looking to have 500 tons per day available in Finland by 2030, which we think is really strategic because of the low cost of hydrogens and low cost of electricity in, in Finland. The commitment by FinGrid to build a hydrogen pipeline in Central Europe, as well as great industries like uh, the steel industry in uh, Finland, which uh, wants green hydrogen in their manufacturing process. That's so kind I'm- of a broad, broad strokes there, John. The thing that differentiates plug, and I really want to emphasize this, a lot of people talk about this stuff. Plug is actually doing it day in, day out. We had an analyst day in Georgia uh, about three, four weeks ago, and the feedback from there was, They've never seen a plant, a green hydrogen plant like the one we built in Georgia. What separates plug is we're not talk, we're action. I, and speaking of talk, there is a lot of it that, that <laughs> revolves around this industry. And I've said, I mean, the biggest knock on, I think, the promise of green hydrogen, at least now, is that there is so much talk and it can do so much that that versatility almost creates ambiguity in the market of like, what should we be doing today and who is actually doing it? So I have kind of a standing policy at, at Renewable Energy World through my reporting that I don't cover memorandums of understanding. I don't cover MOUs because really, uh, you know, they're a nice message to put in a, a press release. And it's nice to tell investors that we've shaken hands and, and we're going to do some, some business in one way or the other down the road. But it's not really real until something gets built or an electron is generated or an offtake agreement comes into play. Um, and, and that's why I'm talking to you today. I, I do want to talk to you because you are doing the work today and, and trying to realize the opportunity around green hydrogen in this, in this vast market, which we know is still in its infancy, even for a company that's been doing this for decades, which is, is kind of the crazy thing. Based on all that production so, capacity. So, they, so, so real, yeah, yeah. real items, John, 60,000 fuel cells, over there 200 fueling stations. About $2 billion being invested in building green hydrogen plants. Real things. And by no the way, MOUs? being used by real. <laughs> I got MOUs. Too, yeah, I know you do. Everyone about does. The MOUs. <laughs> yeah, it's part I'm of, not it's bragging part of about the MOUs. Now, sometimes they become real things. Sure, sure. But yeah. on my end, and this doesn't matter and probably nobody cares, but on my end, they're impossible to track. You know, they, they're thrown out there right. all the time. And there's these big lofty promises, and especially around green hydrogen. It's we're going to build a 
a gigafactory here, or we're going to put this thousand mile pipeline here. And we've partnered with, it just, it doesn't mean anything until, you know, you really get to that, that next stage. So I, I appreciate the collaboration <laughs> and I appreciate the willingness to like push the market forward on here are our ideas. Um, but I like to, I like to deal in the, the tangible, the, the real that is, that is happening in the market. Based on what you're doing right now, and you, you laid out all that production, which I, I think is super helpful. How much of that today is is you know the quote unquote green hydrogen um, that goes through the electrolyzer process versus um, hydrogen produced from from fossil resources? Sure. So if you look at uh, every, if you look at our plant in Georgia, electrolyzers. You look at our plant in Texas, electrolyzers. If you look at our plant uh, in New York, electrolyzers. If you look at California, electrolyzers. In St. Gabriel and uh, Tennessee, we're cleaning up waste streams where the hydrogen would just be burned off, which come from chloralkali processes. So essentially, we're taking, you know, waste chemicals, cleaning them up and putting them to valuable use. So that's kind of a quick rundown of what Plug's doing. And those stacks, you, John, you mentioned people talk about gigafactories. Well, we do have a gigafactory that uh, can make, uh, you know, at a minimum five gigawatts of electrolyzers and fuel cells a year in Rochester, New York. And if you're ever in Rochester, New York, John, you're more than welcome to come visit us. I would love to. That sounds really good. Um, so are, are you still producing uh, electrolyzers for other companies to produce green hydrogen as well? Or are you, you making those for yourself in your own processes? Uh, John, we're, we're selling them to other people. Uh, have a, agreements, <laughs> not <laughs> MOUs with, uh, with, uh, folks like Uniper in Germany. Uh, we have a, we probably, we have a, uh, electrolyzer backlog of about one and a half gigawatts. And, you know, we sell people. Not only electrolyzers, there's some folks uh, uh, that we sell stacks to, which are, uh, you know, developing their own electrolyzer products. So, uh, you know, Plug, uh, you know, Cl Plug has collaborations around the world with people who are looking to build real plants. Let's talk a little bit more about those collaborations, because I think what's what's great about the Inflation Reduction Act is it, it really plays nicely off of the bipartisan infrastructure law in that. Um, the bipartisan infrastructure law set out this framework for hydrogen hubs and how do we direct our investment in the most productive way and efficient way to support an industry that is really just getting off of its feet. And then you have these incentives on the back end for production, which can really you know add fuel to the fire. But do you have any role in that process? And are you guys approaching the, the hydrogen hub um, applications I, I think we're getting some some winners from the department of energy fairly fairly soon so i'd love to hear if you have any color around that oh yeah so john we're you know we have uh, and i have to watch this one because everybody makes me sign ndas too who are doing the hubs <laughs> uh but uh you know we're you know I'll, I'll mention too we're deeply involved in west virginia we're deeply involved in new york we're involved in California and Texas, uh, you know, we, we, uh, are everywhere from providing, uh, products to, uh, our green hydrogen plants being, uh, the heart of some of these hubs. So, uh, 
No, so I the answer the is most of them. Most of them. I think that is the answer, John. <laughs> I mean, and uh, I think that is the answer. I think what's really interesting, though, is how the plugs in the IRA are really closely tied together. And uh, I think a lot of this, uh, these subjects which are being debated around the IRA will also really limit the hubs and uh, is really, you know, quite, you know, they're really all, as you mentioned, all tied together. You know, if the U.S., which was one of the intention of the IRA, is going to be a leader in hydrogen hubs, how Treasury interprets the IRA will have dramatic impacts. Perfect segue, Andy. And I could argue you're hosting this podcast because that, that led me <laughs> right to, to my next point here. Let's keep with that thread on, on the IRA and these incentives. I think for a lot of people in our industry, and, and by industry, I mean just clean energy in general, it's been amazing to see how mainstream the debate over green hydrogen incentives has has gone. If you're you listening to this, whether you're connected to hydrogen or not, you've probably listened to a podcast advertisement about additionality or locational benefits of green hydrogen or um, the phase-in rules and, and wondered why, A, am I listening, hearing this ad on a comedy podcast or YouTube video or seeing the billboard in, in DC or reading about it, you know, in the New York Times, a full page spread, all of that kind of stuff. Um, before we dive deeper into the, the incentives themselves, have you been amazed at all at the shape that that conversation has taken as we talk about the best way to phase in these incentives and what they look like over the next 10 years? Hey, Factor This listeners, it's John Engel. I wanted to let you know that you can now watch every new episode of the Factor This podcast on YouTube. Just search Renewable Energy World and leave a rating and review while you're there. Thanks for listening. So, John, I'm amazed because it has nothing to do with the law. Hmm. That uh, if you really, I was deeply involved with people like Air Liquide and others during the, you know, writing of the law. And, you know, we engaged with many, many senators and nobody was talking about these three pillars. So I'm probably the things that shocked me the most was, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is that, uh, you know, in plugs of opinion and actually the opinion of most members of the Fuel Cell and Hydrogen Energy Association, there's been a uh, missing, there's been a, uh, almost a uh, attack on how the law is going to be implemented that had nothing to do with the discussion and quite honestly in our views against congressional intent and uh, you know it's very quite honestly not only uh, am I shocked by the level of uh, engagement and discussion on the subject I'm actually also shocked by the fact that uh, uh, the aggressiveness of uh, how, what Congress intended that uh, folks have uh, misrepresented and put concepts in place which never were in place when the law was written and quite honestly not in place for any other technology. I personally, I take it as a, a frontal attack on hydrogen in general uh, by folks who just say electrify everything who really don't understand the carbon footprint of the world. 
And we did. And that's another- actually and that's actually the strongest statement I've ever made publicly about it, John. So oh, you got it first. Yeah, I'll, cl- <laughs> I'll clip that for you, Andy. Um, <laughs> we did have uh, Princeton University professor Jesse Jenkins on episode 53 mm-hmm. around this this issue of additionality. Are you bringing new clean energy to the grid? Where are you locating it? And and how do we want to phase in those rules? I think, you know, the American Clean Power Association came out with a uh, a framework that was supported by, I think, a, a lot of the major players on the hydrogen development front that called for a smoother ramp to that zero carbon uh, power generation to support electrolyzers. You've been, as you mentioned, very intimately involved in the shaping of not only the legislation, but the the rollout of the incentives themselves as as chairman of the Fuel Cell and Hydrogen Energy Association. Can you just briefly explain what this three-pillared conversation is dealing with and then how you think it should look? Because there's, there's a lot of consternation around um, how much time we give producers to get to that zero car level um, and, and whether it's going to lock in more fossil fuel resources, natural gas, you know, primarily. So um, help us better understand what that looks like. So, so John, let me uh, give you my simple explanation. There's three items. Uh, additionality, which essentially says to generate green hydrogen, uh, you have to essentially tie wind and solar directly to a green hydrogen plant. And it all has to be brand new. What I find ironic is the government does not have similar laws for their goals to uh, have green buildings by 2030. That they do not even require additionality. So, uh, you know, it's kind of silly. I have a plan in Texas where I have a PPA for 390 megawatts of wind to support my green hydrogen. Uh, that plant, by the purest definition of green hydrogen, wouldn't count and wouldn't exist today without plug. When you think about time matching, uh, you know, I, I would time matching is essentially you only can generate green hydrogen when uh, the wind is blowing and solar's sun is shining. And quite honestly, if you do it that way, um, people who need hydrogen 24-7 will never build plants. And if you did it that way for cars, uh, <laughs> you know, you'd step back and say, hey, um, you know, it's going to take me you know, 12 hours to charge a car because the wind's not blowing or the sun's not shining. Uh, and finally, when you take a look at regionality, which really where you're getting the solar or wind from, we'll contend that it'll limit the level of solar and wind will come on. Plug's done a lot of work in this area. And uh, we've worked with uh, the largest outside consultant involved in the hydrogen industry. And if the Princeton definition took an effect, which is an incredibly extreme position and is really anti-hydrogen. Uh, we see that there's 80% less jobs by 2040. There's a 40% reduction in capital investment. There's 50% less demand for green hydrogen. 83% reduction in greenhouse gases. That would be a minute. So when you take all that into account, it had nothing to do with the law. 
It has nothing to do with uh, how real systems work. And it essentially makes the bill unusable. Hmm. So, you know, our view is that, uh, and our view is not an uncommon view that, and quite honestly, uh, it has nothing to do with the law. And, uh, you know, quite honestly, if Treasury goes down that path, you know, they're just, you know, the major doctrine law requirement, you know, certainly someone's going to bring that to the table because uh, it's not what the law was. And it's just a shame that it's a shame. And then I see these questions about electrolyzers taking taking away from green energy. The build out of green energy is so much larger when you look at the EIA projections versus green energy generation and electrolyzer needs. They're not plug numbers. So it is a uh, it is a uh, approach that, uh, you know, I, I sit back and I'm astonished that uh, uh, folks are even uh, discussing this because it's not discussed for any other technology. And quite honestly, it's just a drive by people. And you see the same folks trying to drive and you're beginning to see news articles about people not putting the money into the hydrogen hubs, which, again, is congressional intent. So as you can see, John, I've developed some pretty strong views on these this subject, but it's based on it's based on data. It's based on investment plugs made to find out what the truth is, because quite honestly, uh, you know, if it had no impact to these items, plug would fully support it. But it's incredibly damaging to the development of the hydrogen economy and people who've never built real things are the ones bringing it to the table. So you don't think it's hyperbole to say that if the if Department of Treasury goes in that direction, adopts the three-pillared approach, a, a more stringent version of it um, that requires that early phase-in of low-carbon power generation, locationality, um, uh, hourly matching, all of that kind of stuff, it could squash the industry just in, in one fell swoop. Yes. Wow. And so I would just I would just I would just add, John, I have more faith in Treasury that they'll follow the law. And you're pretty close to the issue. So I imagine that you're still having conversations with um, either directly or indirectly with the administration, with the people that are involved in in all of this. What's your general pulse for the direction we're heading? Do you think, as with most of these rules, we'll land somewhere in the middle where everyone's kind of grumpy over the ruling, but they say, you know, we can deal with it. That's that's where we've fallen. It's, it feels like with electric vehicles, with some of the the domestic content uh, requirements, all that kind of stuff. So where do you think we're headed? So, John, first, I'm going to take a step back and say, I certainly appreciate the challenges the administration has in managing all these folks. I'll cut that out. Uh, and the different opinion. You'll cut that I'm out. Just, I'm just kidding. I'm messing with you. I just want to get to the, the juicy stuff. No, I'm kidding. So so I, I would just say that it, I, I spent a half hour on this this morning. I looked at the data. And I said to myself, you know, why would um, thoughtful folks compromise? And I, I look at it and I say, it it's, doesn't make any sense to me. Um, I think um, I think thoughtful people should um, probably kick the can for five to seven years and say, we'll relook at it then. Uh, 
But to starve this industry early on makes zero sense to me. And uh, I, I would hope that uh, the folks who are looking to implement uh, will uh, really realize you really don't want to stillborn this industry. And I think that's the real threat today. So is, is the hydrogen hub concept also dead, in your opinion, if, if it goes that direction? Like, does, do those projects even pencil? I think that um, the hydrogen hubs, look, when I look at, you know, every, everything involved with hydrogen has been under attack. You see the hubs under attack. You see carbon, you know, blue hydrogen, you know, which plug doesn't do. But you look at the that's been under attack for uh, sequestering carbon. Uh, you know, I think across the board, uh, it's a general attack against hydrogen. Uh, again, John, I have not been this direct, but it's, you know, the more I read, the more I look at and the more that's coming out. It's folks who really don't want hydrogen to be part of the solution. And I would contend they really don't understand. I would like them to understand, explain to me how you clean up uh, long haul trucking. I'd like them to explain how you do last mile for 30% of the applications. I'd like them to explain how you do a fertilizer. I like them to explain how you do steel, which represents six or seven percent of world's carbon footprint. Electricity solves none of that. And it's a rather frustrating that, uh, you know, if you're really thinking about how from a system point of view, you clean up greenhouse gas, it's not really possible with their solutions. You really have to look at this holistically. Hydrogen doesn't solve everything. I firmly believe green hydrogen doesn't solve everything. I believe there's a place for blue hydrogen. I believe wind and solar are really critical. I also believe, which is probably controversial, that nuclear power has to be a big part of this solution because the footprint for solar and wind is too big. And uh, I think that permitting reform is critical for all this to work. We have to start rolling up the sleeves and start doing things. Um, you know, we have to be more like Franklin Roosevelt was and, you know, be willing to live with some trade-offs without things being perfect and seeing how we can be successful. I think those who are, are taking the extreme positions are going to leave the world not better off, but worse off because they're afraid to get things done. Based on everything you just laid out, I would imagine that internally with you know, other leaders within your organization, you're assessing these as, as very, you know, near term um, and serious threats potentially to, to the business. You've made a lot of investments. You have big plans. You want to be involved in the hydrogen hubs. You want to be this turnkey provider of, you know, the whole green hydrogen solution. But I would imagine a lot of those plans are, are predicated on um, a, a rollout of the Inflation Reduction Act and of these incentives that fit you know, that vision that you just shared of helping propel the industry forward instead of, um, you know, muzzling it. Um, how, how serious are you taking that? And how do you lead the organization, which is, you know, publicly traded and faces the pressure of investors and analysts and 
institutions, all of these things. How do you navigate that? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's kind of game theory, eh, John? <laughs> uh, from an economics point of view, I would say let's let's you know if I think about the advantage plug has. Uh, I have customers. I have a business today that work without the IRA. Um, you know, so you know we have a core business that will continue to improve and continue to be be successful. And but I think the question is, and I think you hit it on the head, how fast we grow, how fast we make investments. Uh, you know, where we make those investments, be it the United States or Europe, you know, or Australia, I think all those questions are on the table based on, you know, how the IRA uh, is interpreted by Treasury. And hasn't Europe adopted a similar kind of three-pillared approach? Am I wrong? Because I know Europe wants to position itself yeah. as the hydrogen yeah. leader and is very aware of what the U.S. is doing. But I, yeah. I have heard some commentary yeah. that, you know, we should yeah. follow Europe's lead. Yeah, yeah I, I, I would say um, when I look at Europe, I, first, I agree with you in many respects. And when I look at, and Europe is more challenging in some ways because of how you have to, t you know, I think Europe also has one advantage the U.S. doesn't have is that Europeans will use sticks much more than carrots, mm -hmm. right? So that'll drive activity. The sticks will drive activity in Europe. So pricing will be higher. But look, when we look at the impact of European rules, uh, you know, it will, if the U.S. adopts European rules, we see the impact in the U.S. is dramatic. We're not the same. Now, first, Europe's not a country in reality. We're not, you know, even with the European Union, we're not the same place. We don't have sticks. You know, it is a carrot approach. It's a much different landscape. We're not putting, you know, you can see the, we're not putting strict rules about when you can enter cities and what your carbon footprints are. So, you know, if the U.S. wants to go to a stick type approach, sure, it'll help us grow, but it's not the insane system as we have here in the United States. And, uh, sure, put European rules in, put European sticks in too. And, That's a good uh, point. You know, being American for a long time, I actually understand we don't really take the sticks too well. Yeah, the whole carbon tax thing <laughs> might not uh, be the, the best approach for this congressional makeup, yeah. in yep. my, my opinion. Or, 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 or even for, uh, even for uh, all us individualists at heart, we really don't like being told, regardless of our party, we don't really love to be told what to do. Let's talk a little bit more about, you know, plugs positioning in the market. Um, it just in reference to the stock, it's been a tough year. I mean, you've you've faced a lot of pressure from investors and analysts on that point. I talked to a lot of CEOs of publicly traded companies who often ignore, you know, the the share price to a degree to say that, you know, we're focusing on making meaningful investments. We're doing the work. We're we're reaching the numbers we we want to. Um, but but that's got to be a difficult and challenging journey of its own. When you're when you're facing those pressures, how does that work into all of this? As you are in a very capitally intensive market that is just getting off the ground, it takes a lot of money to make money, right? In in the green hydrogen space, um, can you can you give some perspective there? <laughs> well, uh, John, uh, 
I do think about the stock price, and <laughs> I think all CEOs. So the think other, about the so stock the other ones price. are lying to me. <laughs> uh, I would just say, uh, if you probably look at their schedules, they count it. They, I went. They, they probably care about their stock price too. <laughs> and um, look, um, you know, we spent a lot of time, you know, looking to tell our story, and uh, you know, key to us is. Uh, really continuing down the path to profitability. I don't think anybody questions our ability to generate revenue. Uh, you know, if you look at our stock, uh, you know, I'll be out next week promoting it in London. I'll be at a UBS conference and a Morgan Stanley conference. And I'll be telling our story to investors. Uh, you know, I, I believe that uh, the growth potential of plug uh, is underestimated. Uh, I know it's. I know uh, profitability and the path to profitability is really important to investors. And as we start executing and showing investors they can make money on, plug can make money and can generate cash, uh, as well as continue to grow. I think investors will reward us. Uh, but it is a uh, look. It is a tough market at the moment, and it's uh, part of my responsibility and management team is to uh you know to manage the business day to day to promote what we're doing but also lay out this vision for the future because look uh, if you're going to meet the global 2050 goals hydrogen has to be part of it and no other company's in a better position to support it than plug i would agree with a lot of what you said and i i just to, I, especially the last part, John. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, yes, the last part. So I, I've long said that I think, you know, timing is everything for a, a, every company. But you look at the kind of clean tech cycles and the companies that had good technology or had good concepts, but it was the wrong time. It was 2009 or it was 2010. And Climate Tech 1.0 or whatever you want to call it goes bust. You know, there were good companies that, you know, get dragged down by those, those, um, those headwinds. So I think that the company's best position to take advantage of the Inflation Reduction Act are those that already had the, the scale of, um, you know, the commercial, the business, the, the corporate structure, as well as that established customer base that you were talking about in this manufacturing footprint. And, you know, the IRA is, is a, a historic piece of legislation, but it is bound in time on its own, too. I mean, we've got got a decade here to really cash in on a lot of these these incentives and to be aligned with that trajectory of we've got a we've got a company that's just ready to soar you face those near term challenges and pressures from the market investors analysts all of that but uh, few are really uh, at the point of maturity to realize the opportunity in my opinion that's what i think is one of the biggest drags right now is that you need scale to to even be able to play in this arena. John, I agree. And I think that's probably Plug's advantage here is we talked early. We actually do real things. We have the biggest gigafactory in the world already to make electrolyzers and fuel cells. We have a large manufacturing integration plant, 400,000 square feet just south of where I'm talking now. Uh, we have 4,000 employees. Uh, you know, we're, you know, we have real products and electrolyzers. We have real products and cryogenic trailers and liquefiers. We have real products and fueling stations. 
We have real fuel cells. You know, I was in um, Netherlands uh, last week, time runs together, where, uh, you know, I was watching our vehicle on the road with that we put on the road with Hyvea, our joint venture with Renault. So Plug's a real company doing real things. Uh, I am convinced will be the investors will be well rewarded in the future sticking with us. Let's wrap up here with, um, you know, we've talked about a number of use cases already, but the, the hydrogen ladder is always something that's a, a point of contention <laughs> itself on what's the best use of hydrogen. And I know you're positioning plug as, you know, we can do it all. We can cover your needs and whatever you want to do with green hydrogen. But in your opinion, can you give us give listeners a, a good idea of what you think we should be focusing on? Is it long duration storage, power gen? Heating, industrial processes like green steel that you mentioned, fertilizer, ammonia, all that kind of stuff. I mean, there's so many opportunities that, again, that point of it just creates a level of ambiguity and leads to this hype cycle um, environment where, you know, I think having a, a bit of focus would be helpful. So a lot of what you talk about, John, has to do with how you make green hydrogen available everywhere. That's, you know, you know, it's. You don't really think think about diesel fuel that way, right? Or natural gas. You know, you know it's there, uh, but there are certain applications which can scale, help scale green hydrogen more rapidly to make it readily available. And I'm a firm believer the industrial applications, especially those applications where today you use gray hydrogen where green hydrogen can be easily substituted are really the easy, easy applications where electrolyzers generating green hydrogen, substituting gray hydrogen in even things like oil refining, as well as concrete manufacturing, uh, chemical processes. They're easy, John, and should be ones that uh, should be converted quickly and really puts customers at low risk because you can do the conversion, you know, you can do partial conversions. Uh, so I think those applications, which have huge carbon footprints, can be remediated first. I think then you look at applications where uh, hydrogen can be added to future processes, like steel manufacturing, when you look at DRI really makes a lot of sense. Uh, and those, again, those that same hydrogen, you know, us in the green hydrogen industry does, don't have to do anything different to support, you know, the manufacturing of ammonia versus the manufacturing of green steel. We're just providing green hydrogen. Then the applications. Um, if you would have asked me, um, asked me years ago, I probably wouldn't have even talked about power plants. But first, let me talk about mobility. With mobility, it's pretty clear to me, it's asset-intense applications. Hydrogen works better. If you got to go range, if you want to run a long time, you know, a lot of folks think the last mile will be 30% hydrogen because you need vehicles on the road. Long haul, those asset-intense applications especially ones which you can establish point to point and use fewer fueling stations make a lot of sense. Uh, 
You know, and when I think about uh, uh, stationary products, to me, it can be a big business short term, but a very, very small piece of the pie. But you, you know, how you go about, you know, you look at what we're doing with SK in South Korea, and we'll have 200 megawatts of stationary products deployed in 2025. It's my belief there are future peaker plants. We're working with, I think, every data center operator, how you make your data centers peaker plants. I, you know, to me, there'll be lots of business there, John. Uh, it'll be a small, small piece of pie between now 2025 and 2030, but really important to customers like companies like Plug. Andy Marsh. Hope that helped your listeners. I think it did. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, Thanks yeah. for not mentioning any uh, MOUs in front of me. You can you can do that with your staff <laughs> afterwards. But um, really appreciate your time today. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me, John. Thanks again to Andy Marsh for joining the podcast. Factor This is a production of Renewable Energy World and Clarion Energy. Join us every Monday as we take on solar's biggest stories with industry leaders who actually move the needle. And please leave us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Factor This from Renewable Energy World. Hey, it's John Ingle, and I'm excited to share that registration is now live for Grid Tech Connect Forum California. Join us in Newport Beach June 24th through the 26th for the Interconnection event. We're bringing together utilities, developers, regulators, and advocates to take on one of the biggest challenges facing the energy transition, both at the DG and utility scale levels. Click the link in the episode description and use promo code PODCAST to save 10% on admission. Join our partners from the Department of Energy, NREL, Southern California Edison, PG&E, Kaiso, Sunrun, NG, Convergent, AES, and so many more for this impactful event. We'll see you there.